1: This is a CBC Podcast.
2: Hi, I'm Lisa Johnson, in for Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? I don't know about where you live, but where I am in B.C., we could really use some rain. Walking outside my house, it smells like a campfire. There are helicopters overhead, fighting wildfires a few kilometres away. We're running sprinklers to help protect our house because the forest floor is so dry Under snapping twigs, the dirt is like sand. Beyond my backyard, drought has taken hold in parts of Canada and the US. It's made conditions ripe for the wildfires that have forced thousands from their homes in BC, Manitoba and Ontario. And on the prairies, fields of crops that should be lush and green are stunted and brown. Water can be so easy to take for granted when you have it, but it's getting less predictable with climate change and more extreme. Today, we look at how to balance our collective thirst with that uncertain future and whether we need to change the way we relate to water altogether. Perhaps no one is thinking more about this year's drought than livestock farmers.
1: It's kind of unplanned for. I didn't, never thought it would get this bad out here. But it's a dire emergency out here. It is real bad.
2: Aaron Oshawa has 100 head of cattle on his fourth generation farm in Manitoba. Normally this time of year, his family is cutting and baling hay while the herd grazes. This summer, the hayfields are struggling and the pasture is dry.
1: It was absolutely shocking, uh, not only to me, but my father. This is the first time we've ever had to haul water out to our our pasture areas to our cattle. We've always had an excess of water, uh, even on the driest years. And, you know, this year was kind of the, the point at which the water just quit coming. We have no surface water left. Dugouts are dried up, the marshes are dried up, the swamps.
2: The Oshaways are looking into the costly option of drilling wells to bring up groundwater to the pasture. They're worried about getting enough feed for the winter, and it's not just them. Aaron's wife April says so many farmers are struggling to feed their herds. Some are selling them off in emergency cattle auctions held specifically because of the drought.
3: There are guys that are have tears in their eyes. They're just they're so broken. Everyone is so broken across the province.
2: Now, droughts have happened before on the Canadian plains and prairies. Sixty summers ago, CBC-TV was reporting on a drought that also had cattle farmers selling off their herds and wells running dry.
4: And now the dust is blowing across the prairie again. In many parts of the Canadian West, last month was the sunniest, warmest, and driest ever recorded. The southern parts of Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta are being baked in a brick-dry drought Reminiscent of the 30s, and some people say it's even worse.
2: That was 1961. Now, droughts are a bit hard to compare, but experts are thinking this year's may end up ranking among the worst. What stands out is just how widespread it is, stretching from the B.C. coast to northern Ontario and the western U.S. Plus, it's not over yet. Trevor Hadwin is an agroclimate specialist with Agriculture Canada. He's been watching the changes and working to build forecasting tools for farmers. We've reached him at his home in Regina. Hello. Hello. So Trevor, much of Western Canada has been facing extreme heat and drought this summer. Can you paint a picture of what impact the drought is having?
1: The drought this summer is uh, really impacting our agricultural producers right across Western Canada. It's causing uh, both grain crops and uh, livestock producers to struggle with meeting their their goals. Yields are being impacted. Production is certainly being impacted. With livestock producers, we're dealing with water shortages and feed shortages and producers having to decide to reduce their herds in terms of livestock.
2: We often hear the term agricultural drought to describe these events, you know, in the perspective of farmers. But what impact is going beyond that sector for people living in cities in those regions?
1: Quite often droughts does not impact areas outside the agricultural industry that heavily. Um, however, during severe droughts like 2001 and two, and the last droughts that we're, we're dealing with right now, 2021, um, we are seeing issues that go well beyond the agricultural industry. In terms of some urban areas, uh, we're, we're certainly dealing with smoke and, and health challenges uh, regarding the fires that are burning due to drought. Feed costs are going up as well as our grocery bills will go up uh, because it's costing more to produce livestock and more to produce uh, our our uh, produce and, and uh, grains. Certain areas have seen breakage of water lines and gas lines and power meters and a whole lot of different damage from drought due to ground settling as well and drying out. Oh. The other big pieces uh, in terms of drought that we, we often don't anticipate is looking at uh, our transportation networks and looking at how food is moved throughout the country or or other goods are moved throughout the country. We're looking at concerns for transportation of grains and other products through British Columbia and other areas that have fires because uh, the rail networks and, and the highway systems tend to get closed in certain areas and that disrupts our transportation network. So drought does have an impact on agriculture, obviously, but the realm of impacts going beyond agriculture is is quite immense when you start to look at uh, severe droughts and how it how it might impact people's lives and and the economy in general
2: well, thinking about other extreme weather events we you've even seen this summer like flooding and wildfires you know they're so easy to like visually see they get a lot of attention how does that compare to drought
1: we don't look at drought as a, a huge impact often because we don't see it tornadoes and and floods and extreme weather like hail. And we see them on the news all the time and and they get a lot of attention. Where drought is more of a creeping disaster most years. So it it starts out very slow and it it lasts a long period of time. So people adjust to it. You don't see it as that big flash image.
2: Adding all this up, these widespread impacts, what are the costs of drought in Canada?
1: When we look at drought, uh, it's really hard to put a price tag on it. We have done a number of studies over the last number of droughts and, and looked at it as one of the costliest natural disasters in Canada. So
2: you know, what do we do about it? We can't make it rain, but you and your colleagues have been working on new tools for forecasting drought. Can you tell me about how the new drought outlook works?
1: We can't make it rain, but we can be prepared for when it doesn't rain. And that's the idea of the new drought forecasting tools that we are putting out. It's part of our drought early warning system that we're developing. So monitoring drought and providing a context of where we are on a regular basis is very important for people to know where to plan for and how to plan for the future. 30 days in advance currently is what we have the availability to do. Um, So we can tell producers that the drought situation is going to worsen, it's going to improve. Areas are going to move into a drought that weren't in a drought before, or areas that were in a drought are actually going to come out of drought situations.
2: Now, can you give us a little preview? Is there any relief in sight for August?
1: Looking at the forecast right now, we're seeing scattered rainfall throughout Western Canada in localized areas, but not widespread, well-developed systems. So unfortunately, what we're seeing is drought continuing and probably intensifying in, in large portions of Western Canada through the early part of August. Not good news at all for, for producers out there, uh, not good news for for uh, fires in, in Western Canada as, as well, considering the situation we're in, uh, overall pretty devastating to a large number of industries.
2: When we think about climate change and how much more unpredictable uh, precipitation can be, how does that amp up the need for tools to look ahead and prepare for drought?
1: Uh, Climate change provides uh, a unique challenge to agriculture. Agriculture in Western Canada is mostly rain fed and and highly dependent on when that rainfall comes. So it's not just the amount of rain that we're receiving. It's not just the temperatures that we're receiving. It's the timing of that rainfall and the plants usage of the moisture that it can receive. So as we move into a more disrupted climate, we are dealing with more unpredictability. We need to Uh, provide those recommendations to uh, producers so that they can make better decisions in terms of how they are going to adapt on their farm and make changes in their management practices to be better prepared for situations of drought into the future.
2: Trevor Hadwin, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you very much.
2: When the water we need isn't coming from above, we can look below to groundwater held in aquifers, But our next guest cautions that is not a get-out-of-drought-free card, especially in the unpredictable future of climate change. Jay Famlietti is Executive Director of the Global Institute for Water Security at the University of Saskatchewan. Hello. Hey, thanks for having me. So you look at freshwater around the world. What are the trends when it comes to climate change and the availability of that freshwater globally?
0: It's really changing quite rapidly and in with very distinctive patterns we're seeing the high latitude areas of the world getting wetter and the low latitude areas of the world getting wetter and in between the mid latitude areas getting drier. And then we're also seeing these hot spots where the ice sheets are melting and glaciers are melting and groundwater is being overused. And we're also seeing the hot spots that are showing up um, that represent the
2: increasing frequency of the strengthening of the flooding and drought. So it's, it's, a, it's a compelling picture. You've written about the global groundwater crisis and the potential for even violent conflict coming out of it. Is that is that like sci-fi or is that a reality of what could be happening in the world?
0: It's a real thing. I mean, sometimes I think it gets a little overblown and and it certainly captures the imagination. But the reality is, I think, as we look towards the future, we will probably see more of it. A lot of the regional water scarcity issues span political boundaries. They could be states, they could be provinces, they could be international boundaries. And it could be a river basin or it could be a groundwater aquifer and, and it's really difficult to get people to you know to come to the table and have have a reasonable discussion.
2: And those groundwater sources are getting depleted. What happens when when it runs out in a place? Do you just drill further and drill further? what do you do?
0: Well, you, you can if you are very wealthy, but at some point, you know, you literally reach the bottom. As we go deeper into aquifers, the the quality of the water degrades, and it gets more expensive to dig those deeper wells, and it more expensive to to pump out the water if there is any water. Some places we don't actually know how much groundwater is left. We know that the quality is degrading. We just haven't done the exploration of our groundwater aquifers the way that we would have if they were oil reservoirs.
2: Well, let's uh, talk about Canada now, looking at climate change and the freshwater that we need here to be growing food, you know, and, and the drought we're in right now. What challenges or opportunities does that pose for Canada?
0: You know we look around the global south we see these places that are running out of water and and so that points to opportunities for canada to fill this global food gap on the other hand you know we've got this incredibly variable water cycle now so we're in the middle of this really tremendous drought it's having huge impact on agricultural productivity um i think that there's a challenge and there's an opportunity for us ahead as we think about groundwater and uh, surface water availability it is how can we manage that more variable water supply and how can we use groundwater wisely if we need to to produce food sustainably you know we've got a rapidly growing population globally we've got the desire to increase uh, food production uh, here in the prairies anyway in saskatchewan anyway and and so that will take more water but we have to do it in the face of this really variable difficult to manage
2: water supply how do you balance that, like the benefit of being able to maybe grow more food if you're irrigating more land um, against the risk of depleting resources? Um, you know, those become societal questions.
0: How do we want to allocate our resources? Do we want to, if we know that we have a certain amount of water, how do we want to allocate it? How do we want to allocate it for the environment, for For food production, for municipalities, you know, these are questions that we need to grapple with now. But we're a little bit hamstrung because we don't always have the measurements that we need. We don't have those observations. And it's not just Canada. It's really around the world. As incredibly valuable as water is, it's really surprising that we don't have better measurements for things like stream flow and evaporation and groundwater levels and water quality. We just haven't really pulled it together.
2: Well, you're based in Saskatchewan. What conversations are happening there right now about using groundwater to expand agriculture?
0: One of the things that is being discussed now is a, a major irrigation expansion of about uh, 500,000 acres uh, to be fed, by mostly by Lake uh, Diefenbaker. So the questions that uh, I have are, you know, is, is there enough water to actually irrigate that amount of land? Is there enough water to irrigate it uh, reliably and continuously, meaning so that we're not really, you know, we don't have to shut down like we're doing right now uh, because of drought? Or will we have to tap into the groundwater? and? we have to do that work to figure it out it's basically accounting but there is uh some hard numbers that we need to provide
2: groundwater in other locations it seems has provided a little bit of a like a savings account that gets tapped into in those years that there isn't enough water to go around or as agriculture expands is that the role that you would could see it playing here
0: yeah absolutely i think that it is the the buffer that provides resilience uh, during drought, and it will also provide uh, resilience to to climate change and this increasing frequency of, of drought, for example. So that's the thing. And, you know, the analogy to the, the, the savings account is, is a good one. And it's almost more like a retirement account. So you want to really use it really carefully and you want to make sure that you preserve it for future generations. So in many places around the world, only the surface water is managed. I'm talking about water in you know, rivers and lakes and, and reservoirs. And the groundwater is often unmanaged. So we have to, here in the prairies, if we decide that we need to use more groundwater, we have to be managing the surface water and the groundwater together.
2: So there's discussions, engagement right now about creating a Canadian water agency. Mm-hmm. What do you think that organization could do in terms of helping with these problems?
0: It could address some of these issues head on, you know, these issues of of uh, equity and governance. Indigenous peoples, uh, you know, haven't had the access to water that they should. And we read about these boil water advisories and, you know, those are issues that need to be addressed. Our transboundary issues, some of our big basins span provincial boundaries. And, you know, it's not clear that uh, those relationships across the boundaries are being managed well. Another role that it can play is in making sure that we have the, nationally, have the forecasting tools that we need, whether we're thinking about water availability forecasting or groundwater forecasting or flood forecasting. And one more important one is this, the piece of the managing the surface water and the groundwater together that so often gets left off the table.
2: Now, you mentioned the work, the monitoring and measuring that hasn't really been done here or many other places I'm curious why that hasn't happened historically. Um,
0: you know, part of it could be the lack of an agency like this Canada Water Agency that we're talking about that would have oversight and would say, OK, yeah, federally, we need to make sure that we have this set of measurements. No one has oversight for, their, for the whole thing. And then there's the whole awareness piece, you know, awareness now of climate change and the fires and the drought that we're having this summer are underscoring how how this is rapidly changing. If the awareness isn't there amongst our agencies and amongst our elected officials, it's not going
2: to happen. Jay Family Eddy, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic? No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. You heard us talking there about something called the Canada Water Agency. That's a federal body that would work with other levels of government and Indigenous communities to manage and protect freshwater across the country, everything from lakes to groundwater. It doesn't exist yet, but Indigenous engagement is happening now. Deborah McGregor says one thing that's often missing from water management in Canada is any meaningful incorporation of Indigenous knowledge. McGregor is an associate professor at York University and Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Environmental Justice. She is Anishinaabe from Whitefish River First Nation in Ontario. Hello. Hi. Let's start with the language. What is the word for water in the Anishinaabe language? Well, most commonly known as Nibe,
3: although there's different words for river
2: um, and lakes, but for water as we commonly think about it, it would be nibi. Going beyond Uh, the clinical definition of water that you might see in an English dictionary. How does um, the Anishinaabeg definition and worldview sort of change how you relate to water and behave with water?
3: I think the the best way that I can explain it is, and I guess I can speak to Anishinaabeg perspective the best, is certainly we do understand water in the same way that I guess science would that you that you'd, you'd find in any kind of dictionary water is h2o a colorless tasteless liquid but it's way more than that the the, I, the concept of water the relationship to water is a lot broader so water water is understood to be life-giving thought about as being life itself having agency in the world having a say and how things how things happen water is understood as um, having personality which is becoming increasingly recognized and and what people do or humanity humans do is try to develop appropriate and reciprocal relationships with water because they do have common goals which is to support life but water is understood as having its own its own entity it's not just there for people to use although we can use it but you would be working on developing Appropriate, respectful, ethical relationships with water.
2: There's a, a temptation that I've read about, and that perhaps I'm also living with. To when you describe like water doing its own thing, water having agency, for you know an outsider to the culture to maybe think of that metaphorically or poetically. But maybe I shouldn't be. How how should that be understood?
3: So I live in the Great Lakes area. So in Ontario, um, Great Lakes area. So we think about the Great Lakes as having Each Great Lake actually having its own personality, having its own agency. And we would bother to try to develop a relationship with the water. So when you're going to go on the water, there would be protocols that would be followed in order to engage, either use water or move across water in terms of transportation. There was this recognition that there was a way that you related to water um, appropriately, because there is a dualism to water. So water, water supports life and is life, but it also can take life. So in the culture, there were processes and protocols in place that would ensure that people related to water in appropriate ways so that life could continue. Because water also doesn't just support human life, which tends to be a big priority in Canadian legislation and in protecting water. Water also supports aquatic life, Other forms of life, uh, wildlife that depend on water for for drinking or moving or living. So Indigenous concepts of water go beyond just what humans benefit from or how humans use it.
2: So what does it mean to manage or look after fresh water from this perspective? Or is like manage the absolute wrong word to use?
3: It's really asking people to think about water in a different way and to realize that we would behave quite differently. If we understood that we had to live in to coexist with water, we fundamentally have to think about water differently rather than try to find different ways of managing or trying to govern water. That whole narrative might be flawed and maybe we need to think about how do we even understand water?
2: Now, you've worked in this field in Indigenous water governance for a long time. And over that time, Indigenous knowledge has become more prevalent in terms of what governments talk about here in Canada. But have you seen much progress into actually incorporating Indigenous worldviews or laws into practice?
3: I haven't seen it so much in, I guess you could say, what I would call conventional or mainstream water governance. What you will see is recognition of Aboriginal and treaty rights. You might see some reference to the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. You will see some recognition in writing theoretically in an abstract conceptual way, indigenous knowledge. Um, So you will see increasingly so in Canadian legislation, the recognition of an indigenous knowledge, but what that sort of looks like in practice is a whole other matter. What tends to happen is it's still marginalized. Like you'll see it in a little box in a report or something
2: like that. Oh, and by the way, indigenous peoples think about water this way. If engagement were to be done well with indigenous communities about water, who who should be talked to? The typical sort of um, response from, in in developing
3: legislation or public policy around water is is to go to the political territorial organizations or the national indigenous organizations, which is appropriate. They, that absolutely should happen, but that's limited. You need to go beyond that in developing the chiefs of Ontario water declaration. They went also to uh, elders, knowledge keepers. Women have to be involved in the Anishinaabek tradition. It's the women who who speak for water. And so so you're going to a whole range of different people, the people who actually hold a lot of the knowledge, understanding, and laws regarding water.
2: Now, you and other scholars have written about just how different Indigenous worldviews are from the way settler governments tend to manage and assign rights to water. How do you see them working together? Or can they?
3: I think they can. Um, There definitely is overlap in terms of understanding, like recognizing, hey, we've got a crisis on our hands in terms of, rights for water. I, I think there is a bit of hunger or interest in Indigenous perspectives on this, maybe not necessarily by governments, although I think increasingly so, depending on who the government is, but ENGOs, the public. Um, and, and and I'd say over my career, I've seen it increasingly so. Like People talk about it a lot more, whereas before, it was a big push to even have Indigenous knowledge um, recognize now people talk about it, they may not know what to do about it, but they know hmm. it's something that should be part of the conversation it's in the radar. but this all should be indigenous led
2: you mentioned some uncertainty about what to do about it. Are there any examples that you view as successful that does have indigenous knowledge sort of built in and not just in a in a little box in a report?
3: Well, one example um, that's come from the Decolonizing Water Project is the development of a NABED Declaration. This is what Treaty 3 in Northwestern Ontario and Toolkit, and where the The teachings, the worldview, the understanding of who's got obligations to take care of water. How do we realize our responsibilities to water? Like that's only how people talk about it rather than water governance. And the whole purpose of it is to to revitalize. And because of, you know, interruption through colonial processes and residential schools has disrupted a lot of this. So people are revitalizing a lot of these understanding and teachings and, and knowledge even within their own communities. The other is through the Chiefs of Ontario Water Declaration. So Chiefs of Ontario is the coordinating body for First Nations in Ontario. And that declaration has had an influence in government policy. They knew they had to somehow respond to it. So you see sort of mention of it, again, putting into the radar these different views of water and understanding of water. And that declaration has been around since 2008. And two decades ago, you know, I helped or I wrote the report on traditional knowledge and first nations for the walkerton inquiry and before that it really wasn't in the radar people didn't talk about it it was more around recognition of aboriginal and treaty rights which is absolutely has to happen that's a big factor in dealing with indigenous water security and so over the last two decades you see it a lot more and people are becoming interested in how you know indigenous knowledge traditional knowledge there's different terminology for this british ecological knowledge um, can work with science uh, together in different ways to try to address the big, you know, water insecurity um, challenges that we might all be facing. This also relates to the nature of water. Water does its thing. And what I mean by that is water isn't, let's say, in my community, you know, flowing out and all of a sudden saying, oh, I'm off reserve now and now I'm in provincial jurisdiction. Water doesn't do that. Like, <laughs> it's it, it <laughs> flows and does its thing. And you have to be able to work with others. You have to, you kind of have to move like water in who you interact with and, and who needs to be involved in, in taking up those responsibilities to um, take care of water.
2: You referenced some of the big problems. And I want to ask about that as climate change makes droughts and flooding more likely on top of other water issues we already have. What role do you think Indigenous knowledges could play in, in dealing with that?
3: climate change does exacerbate a lot of these water insecurities happening around the world you know creating huge drought situations in one place and flooding in another at the same time to me indigenous knowledge has a role to play in that now i will say that in you know in the global water water development reports i don't there i don't really see sort of the recognition of indigenous knowledge per se Unlike the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, they do. They're recognizing it and wanting to have traditional knowledge form part of their assessments on what's happening with the planet. But the, the most recent report on the World Water Development Reports did recognize that there's different values. That's sort of how they frame it. And for the first time, they talk about culture and spirituality as being part of those values. There's been uh, international Indigenous water declarations and often Indigenous peoples who've gathered at a lot of these world water forums produce these declarations because they feel excluded from the broader mainstream process. So there needs to be transformation. And I think Indigenous knowledges and perspectives can help provide
2: what that transformation could look like. Deborah McGregor, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you.
3: Thank you for, for having me, and, and hopefully some of what I shared might uh, be
2: some food for thought for, for listeners. We give the last word to Harley Bastien.
4: Okay.
2: Bastien is an elder and knowledge keeper from Piccani First Nation in southern Alberta, a member of the Blackfoot Confederacy. He generously shared a lesson from his grandmother, Angeline Provost.
4: So when I was a child... We used to go up into the mountains, up here, in our traditional backyard. There's a creek up there, in the in the mountain, uh, which today they they call it the Castle area. We used to go up there, and uh, this time of the year, late July, early August, and we would pick uh, what we call the or owl eyes. Today, they they refer to them as huckleberries. While we went there and we picked, we were made to be quiet. We never talked loud. There was no hollering, climbing trees, running about. It was just quiet. Almost spoke to a whisper. Remember when I was about nine years old, getting a little frisky and too big for my my shoes here, I, one of my cousins found a couple of sticks and we started sword fighting. And you we heard that clicking noise from the sticks hitting together and they, right away it come over. Older cousins said, hey, it's, cut that out. Put them sticks down. Well, we put them down and my grandmother called us over, waved us over and went over there and gave us heck. She said, we keep quiet when we come to the mountains. You kids, you know that. And I was getting a little lippy at the time. I said, well, how come? Nobody here. That's when she really kicked in the high gear, turned around, looked at me, and anybody that looked, she was dead serious. And she said, in the mountains is where all the spirits live. The powerful spirits are up here. And if we make noise and we disturb them, the spirits will get mad and they'll, they'll move away. And when they, the spirits move away, the land will become sick. And when the land becomes sick, the plants, the animals, and the people will start dying. And they'll cry up to the creator for rain, but it'll be too late. After hearing that, and in hindsight, I know exactly what she was talking about. She she was talking about today, of how the spirit of the land is not acknowledged. The spirit is leaving the planet.
2: We'll leave you with that. If you like what you're hearing on the podcast, please give us a review and tell a friend. Looking ahead, the world has been opening back up from the pandemic. But it's making some ask, are there parts of what was normal we could really do without? We're working on an episode about consumption, from the stuff we buy to the overseas vacations we book, and asking, is making do with less part of the climate change solution? We want to hear from you. Send us your thoughts, earth at cbc.ca. Thanks this week to the What on Earth team, associate producer Serena Renner. Our engineer is Matthias Wolfson. This week, Molly Siegel is our senior producer. I'm Lisa Johnson, in for Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening.